0: Big data is yesterday, fast data is now. PhiloDB is a reactive columnar OLAP database that is built on Cassandra and Spark. Today's guest is Evan Chan, the creator of PhiloDB. In our discussion today, we talk about the use cases of an OLAP data store. Evan explains how to tackle the problem of video analytics. If you've ever found yourself asking how a company like YouTube or Netflix or Uyala performs analytics on millions of users watching millions of videos, this episode is for you. By combining the database features of Cassandra with the data processing power of Spark, Evan created PhiloDB to help solve this type of analytics problem. Evan Chan is a distinguished engineer at TupleJump and the creator of PhiloDB. Evan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Let's start from a high level. A quote that you have said is that big data is yesterday, fast data is now. What does this quote mean? Um, that's a great question. So uh,
1: it's it's just referring to, um, I think, when, when the big data hype started, um, what everyone was uh, doing, uh, was creating, uh, these files and putting them in say Hadoop and and processing them. And and this took a while there would be, uh, there would be delays. And so after a day you would get some results, you know, or maybe in some cases, you know, an hour or so, but, but the world is becoming more and more interactive. Like people want answers like right away. And and so you're seeing the rise of uh, stream processing and real time, right? So uh people want like you know it's kind of like Twitter people you know want to see responses right away. So um so so this is just referring to that just having just the pro uh the ability to process tons of data is, is not enough. We need to react to data quickly and to deal hmm. with streams.
0: So this problem space that's become super important in software engineering these days is this need for an analytical database that can query large volumes of structured big data, but can also query fast data that is constantly updating. This is sort of canonical of this big data versus fast data problem. Why are these two problems of large volumes of structured structured big data and the ability to query fast data, why are these two problems difficult to solve at the same time?
1: Um... I think it's just. Be, um, that's a good question. So why why are the why is the problem of um, fast data and and big data solving them at the same time difficult? It's it's sort of like um, uh, uh, who is that? Um, the um, uh, let's see, I'm blanking out a moment. But you, you know you know what they say. Like when you try to measure, like in physics, you try to measure uh, something. Uh, really, Eisenberg's um, uncertainty principle yeah, yeah that's right the uncertainty principle it's, it's kind of like that right so so the more that you try to focus on one thing it's harder to do uh another thing and it's sort of like that right like the frameworks that are well a, at least uh when you look at it at a high level the the frameworks that uh process data with the really, really low latency um are designed for low latency and not so much for uh throughput and uh and and the other way around. So, for example, Hadoop is typically uh, architected for a throughput. It's designed to load tons of data um, at, at the biggest volume possible. And, and Spark kind of comes from that tradition as well, but it's edging towards the streaming world. On the other hand, if you look at all the frameworks that process data in a streaming way, well, if you look at the extreme example are like, say, financial trading systems, right? Those are those are done like very, very specifically for super low latency and everything is oriented around that. Um, and, and, and so typically they focus only on a few really simple computations, right? Like the, the sums and, you know, things like that. Um, and then you move on to systems like um, Scala and Akka, which which is, again, like message processing. And you can have, like, a bit more state, but it's still, like, really oriented towards one message at a time. And systems like Apache uh, Storm. Um, and um, so, so now there's become a continuum. But typically those systems are... Um, are you know, just designed for different things than you know the batch systems. But the but the really neat thing is that um, uh, if you think about it, um, you can you can think of them as sort of uh, there are definitely similarities because you can think of a batch system as a streaming system of sorts in a sense that I'm reading data from disk. You know, I am you know really um, and, and that's a stream. You know, so so there's there's actually uh, some overlap. Um so you can actually approach from the streaming side and say, "You know, I can build something batch you know based on a streaming model and try to make that work. So so it's it's actually um, not really opposed, but they're but they're just uh, systems that designed for different goals.
0: Mm, interesting. So one example that you've given that describes this problem, this uh, fast data and large structured big data, uh, the, this canonical example you give is this video analytics problem, um, and I think it would make a good reference point for an example. So like a company like YouTube or Netflix yep. or Uyala yep. would have this problem where millions of users are watching videos throughout the day, and their interactions with the videos are giving off just billions of events. And right. and you, right. as, as some sort of data analyst, you want to be able to do analytic queries on all, all of the data, including the fresh data. So, what are the requirements for a system that can do this?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, you know, you, um, uh, I, I think you've actually stated some of those requirements already. you want to be able to look at, you know, fresh data, uh, but you want to be able to analyze, um, you know, data that's, you know, being in the past. Um, well, let, let's look at. There's several. So, if you look at the the uh, People who are most interested in consuming this data, um, they they might be looking at different windows of time. Like they may be looking at the most recent, and then they want to look at you know the more historical um, you know point of view for for someone who is um, and they want to see the same like they want to see similar um, types of data. Like they don't want to go to one system for the new data and another system for the old data. So so for uh, for the engineer's point of view, um, uh, you have to find some way of Um, having a unified view of the new data and historical data. Um, And there's different ways of of doing that. Um, uh, There's been a popular term um, in the big data world called the Lambda architecture, where folks have tried to solve this problem by um, having what is called a fast um, uh, pipeline that um, approximates recent data um, and then um, there is also a batch pipeline that deals with historical data, and you try to merge the two views. So so that, that's been uh, talked about a lot and floating around.
0: Right. And uh, before we go any further, could you define the terms OLAP and OLTP? Because I think those are relevant to the conversation.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that's fine. So um, <laughs> OLTP is online transaction processing and, the, the olab is simply switching the t for an a which is analytical processing basically um, let's put it in more simpler term like layman's terms right sure Although tv you can think of it as like uh let me build amazon like um let me build like millions of shopping carts and i want that to work uh really really well right so your goals in that case are i want um a lot of availability um and i want to be able to like update the shopping cart like have Millions of like updates, like happening all the time, right? To uh, someone's say shopping cart or profile or something like that. Um, whereas you can think of OLAP as uh, maybe now I have all these shopping cart transactions. Someone wants to analyze them later and figure out, oh, what is what are the trends? You know. So I'm so instead of updating like one user's data at a time, like millions of times, um, you're looking at uh, going through millions of records like, a few times. So, it's a very, very different emphasis.
0: So, this video analytics system that we're kind of discussing, this would be an OLAP system.
1: Yeah, that would be an OLAP system. It's ingesting a lot of data and analyzing it.
0: Prior to your work on PhiloDB, what were the options that were available to build this type of OLAP system?
1: Um, Well, I'll, I'll describe the approach that we have we had taken at uh, at Uyala, for example, for uh, video analytics. What what uh, what we did is um, we would um, ingest the files into, say, Hadoop, and you know, they, and they would collect we would collect tons of data. Then we would run uh, batch Hadoop batch jobs to uh, crunch this uh, data um, and take the raw data and um, compute aggregates with it, uh, and this. Um, would then get saved to uh, Cassandra. And then Cassandra becomes a good uh, database for reading point values for dashboards. So we would basically store different breakdowns um, in Cassandra um, and uh, serve it to people that way.
0: Do we need a database abstraction for this type of purpose that has both... Fast read and write capabilities, or do we just need like fast reads, or what exactly do we need from our database?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a that's a, a good question. Um, I mean, if you if you look at if we go back in history, not even that far, um, to look at the traditional databases, uh, the MySQLs, um, and then at more of the analytical databases like the Verticas, did um, they, they actually had this capability, like of you could. Write tens of data, and you could read them quickly, and and do things, and they would update. Um, but uh, what happens is that uh, a lot of those systems, well, MySQL is, is open source, um, and it's more transaction no uh, database. It's not that fast for analytics. But if you take uh, uh, examples like Vertica, um, most of those types of systems were proprietary and closed source, um, and and they um, most of them. Um, Could not scale very well, or until like I think that uh, they've been able to scale more, um, but but then it would cost a lot more. So, um, what happens when Hadoop came out was Hadoop was designed for processing a lot of data, and um, but um, but files. So so as as it's based on files, um, then you went from database abstraction to a file abstraction. A lot of people call Hadoop a database. But you know it's it's you know it's a file system with the processing layer on top, right? So what you get with a file system is that um, you get economical storage, uh, which is which is very important, granted, for big data. Um, but at the same time, file abstraction is is very different; is a much lower level than database abstraction. So so that's what folks have been working with. Um, and then you also have the rise of NoSQL uh, of databases like Cassandra and Mongo and all these, which um, Seem like they're they're great for transactions because you can identify things by key value, but in terms of the economy of um, storing data and analyzing a ton of them is is not quite the same, right? So 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 you sort of have um, you sort of see the big data world being split into um, kind of these two different camps, and mm-hmm. and, and so what we uh, what I see uh, is is a is a need to um, you know bridge bridge the two worlds
0: again so i think it's important to discuss cassandra um like you said cassandra is one of the uh models you know you you kind of discussed the the massive massively parallel processing databases like vertica uh and then you know cassandra so i i guess what are the relevant features of cassandra for listeners who have no idea what cassandra is um what should they know
1: uh, so, so Jeff, I think the, um, Cassandra, let's see, where should I start? Um, so Cassandra is a, <laughs> gosh, it, it's been described in a lot of terms, but you can think of it as a distributed, um, key, a key value, uh, database. What does that mean? I uh, think of actually th- the analogy I like to use is that uh, it's like a spreadsheet. Um, so think of Excel, you have rows and columns, right? Um, so, um, in Cassandra, you can store like structured and semi-structured records, uh, tons of them. It's distributed, meaning that um, you don't have to worry about sharding your data. You write your data, and you define a data model. And Cassandra takes care of distributing all your data for you. It makes sure that the data is highly available. So those are really good things. Um, but how, what the unique thing about Cassandra is that it's, it's based on um, Amazon's Dynamo. Um, and you can think of it as a uh, basically a spreadsheet where... Um, you have uh, rows and columns, and the rows are called partitions. So you define a partition key that basically defines what, um, what rows are you going to have. And um, that will tell Cassandra, the database, how to distribute your data. And, and then each row in the spreadsheet is guaranteed to be on a single node. Um, and then you, and then the columns are important because in Cassandra you can do range queries. So basically, you define your data model as you choose your your, your row axis and your column axis. And then, and then that uh, basically chooses how you can partition your data as well as how you can quickly access your data. Right? An example, like a classic example for Cassandra that a lot of people use it for is time series. Right? Let's say that I have um, thousands of machines, right? And I'm storing data. So um, I might use the machine uh, ID as a uh, what is called a partition key, kind of like labels of, of the rows, and and that would dist- Cassandra would distribute those writes uh, as as new data is coming in. They would get uh, populate different rows, uh, one row per machine, and then um, what happens is that for your columns you would use a timestamp. So as new data comes in and the timestamp increases, it it kind of you can think of the spreadsheet as filling up uh, more and more to the right. Right. And, and so what that means is that when I read data um, for a single machine, it's very easy because I look up the row that has a machine ID and then I look up the range of times I want and I pluck out the data. And, and so for that use case, it's uh, it's a very, very good fit.
0: Mm. And I think what you're getting at is that this columnar access pattern um, is is effective for doing uh, queries over large, uh, volumes of entries where if you, you know, if you were thinking in terms of rows, you know, if you, if you wanted to get all the ages of, uh, of somebody from a particular, all the, all the ages of, a of individuals from a, uh, from a row storage database that would, uh, you know, maybe be a more, um, compute intensive operation than getting all the ages from a, from a columnar storage. Uh, so it's, so it's conducive to this, to this, uh, uh, OLAP use case. Would you say it's accurate? Um,
1: okay. Let, let me. Let me. Uh, okay. Sorry. Let me, let me go back a little bit. So okay, it's, sure. it's not quite like that. Um, it's it's more that. Um, let me see. What's the best way to put it? Um, basically, it's like this. Cassandra is not like a, a regular database like MySQL. Um, it doesn't. It has very limited indexing capabilities. Um, So the way that you model your data for fast reads, like in a traditional database, I would say, you know what, I need to access by column A or column B. So I'm going to throw an index at it. Then the index is going to let me pick at just the data I want. Cassandra is a little different. It does have uh, secondary indexes, but they're not very effective. So um, the way that most people work is that we build models. Basically, the reason why I, I said spreadsheet is because you think of looking up Cassandra data in terms of like, uh, I want to access this row of data and, and these columns from it. Uh, and when I say columns, I don't mean, sorry, I don't mean like columns as in like I have a record and I want first name, last name. Um, what, what it is, is you can just think of a spreadsheet let, and, you, and you can arrange your data in two axes. Then I can access the data by any one of the two axes very fast. Uh, any other access pattern is is probably going to be pretty slow. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to clear up for, as far as columnar access is Cassandra actually is like role-based in terms of the storage, if you use regular Cassandra tables. So if you, let's say that you have first name, last name, age, um, I don't know, ID or something like that, you'll find that those are always stored together in the record. So if you have a lot of, uh, let's say that you come from a data warehousing background and you're dealing like typical OLAP, like you might have table fact tables that are hundreds of columns pretty easily. Um, those hundred columns will be stored together. So, if you wanted to pick out two columns out of the 100, it will actually be very slow because it has to read back all those records, and it has to jump from. Let's say you want first name or age, right? Then it has to jump to the age in every record. So, in that way, it is actually like a um, Cassandra is like a regular row-based database in terms of the storage layout, um, but unlike a database, it doesn't have um, it doesn't have uh, you know very performant indexes. So um, So the big difference is that you need to model your data very differently. You can't just dump your data and add a bunch of indexes. You need to maybe create three or four tables that have the um, X and Y axes modeled according to how you're going to query. And that's traditionally how you get very fast performance out, is that you have to do different kinds of data modeling.
0: Okay. So given that, what do we need to augment? You know, much of your uh, you know the, the talks I've seen you give is about augmenting Cassandra with other functionality that would allow it to be good enough as the data store to provide this type of OLAP analytics service. Right. So what do we need to augment Cassandra with in order to provide this type of analytics?
1: Well, I think what you notice about Cassandra, for those of us that uh, we've used it for a long time, um, is that if you really uh, you, Cassandra lets you store anything you want. So um it does have a native like SQL uh syntax where you can define tables and say these are my columns but you don't have to use it that way um and most of us that have used Cassandra for a long time like I've used it since it was you know in the old 6 days like you know several years seems like ages ago and the the way that um we uh, model data was uh, uh, was that uh, we just decided how we're going to store it so that it's efficient. So, for example, you can store a blob, right? You can store um, your let's say you have you know twenty fields. You can store it as a JSON bl- uh, blob, right? And then you can read that out, and you might find that to be more efficient than um, the regular way of storing it. So, so, so we play with a lot of these things. That Uyala, for example, would store data as. Um, uh, thrifts blobs uh, because it's very compact and reads very fast. So so these are the things that we're used to playing with. So what I thought was, you know, um, columnar storage is great because for analytics, you really want to pull out only the data that you need. Um, and 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 it gives a lot of advantages because you could easily, <clears throat> if you think about it this way, um, compressing ho- rows is, is not actually that efficient because you kind of, um, the data that um, it's easier to compress data when data is um, the same type of data is next to each other, right? Let's say I have a thousand or let's say I have a million integers um, and I know something about those integers, I can actually do a much better job of storing that in an efficient way than um, a whole bunch of mix of different kinds of data. And so, mm-hmm. so so those are the two key observations is that um, in order to make analytics uh, use case fast where I usually read only a small portion of the data, uh, small columns, I can st- I store the columns together. So that's the first thing. Um, so I store, let's say I have a million rows, then I store all, all the data for first name um, together, and I store all the data for uh, last name together and age and so forth. Uh, and then you apply certain kinds of uh, columnar compression techniques, like something like a dictionary encoding for strings. It's the observation that um, you, have a, you might have a million um, names but there aren't a million unique first names. You know, there's maybe, I don't know, say 10,000, right? So, so what you can do is you can store t- map the 10,000 strings to numbers and store numbers, which is a lot more compact. So when you combine those techniques, then you end up with a storage format that can read out, um, that can store data much more compactly um, and read out a lot less of it. Um, the benchmarks that I've done, which is based on public data sets, Um, show that uh, fellow DB is about, it it really depends on your data structure, but for say a a, um, data set that's about say 60 columns wide, um, the space savings is about um, 7x um, in the storage front alone. Um, And if you combine that with being able to um, read only the columns that you need, then you end up saving a lot on IO and um, having much faster reads.
0: So this brings us to Spark. Why is Spark a good companion for Cassandra?
1: That's a good. Um, that's a good question.
0: Well, so
1: Cassandra, because traditionally Cassandra hasn't, um, uh, Cassandra allows you to do simple reads, right? So you can look up data, um, but traditionally, like you haven't been able to do aggregations, you haven't been able to do joins, this kind of thing. So Spark brings lot of deep analytical capabilities um, in terms of more complex queries uh, for OLAP, um, but it also brings other things like machine learning. You could read stuff out and do regressions and uh, compute models. So, so it brings like like whole like huge toolbox uh, that you can analyze data with. Um, and besides analytics, the other uh, use case that uh, folks have found useful for Spark is just as a ETL tool and as a tool for um, moving data around for doing administrative jobs, uh, folks have found that to be um, a good, good use as well.
0: You've also said that we can think of using Spark as Cassandra's cache. Can you explain what you mean by that in more detail?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, so, it's so if you think about um, the different layers of caching, uh, the Cassandra database there is the bottom. Cassandra itself has some caching, which is uh, before you access. Uh, basically, it comes before the network but between um, on the server side. So there's server-side caching. Um, and and then you can cache in your client. Well, Spark is sort of like client-side caching in that um, you can cache data after you read from the network uh, in memory. And, and that offers a, a huge uh, performance benefit because you don't have to go through uh, the network to get get the data. So what it would look like is that, let's say your data is static, then you can cache your data um, in Cassandra as a, um, so Cassandra has, uh, sorry, uh, you can cache your data in Spark. Spark has um, SQL uh, SQL data frames, and those can be cached in memory in an efficient format. So then uh, you can do something like cache table. And 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 then the next time you read a table from Spark, it will cache it in memory. Then you can read it back much, much faster. And the ability to cache uh, data in Spark is uh, one of the things that's made it very famous and very well-suited to things like machine learning and iterative algorithms. Mm. Yeah.
0: So I think this brings us to PhiloDB. And PhiloDB is a reactive columnar OLAP database that is built on Cassandra and Spark. I'd love to get a high-level overview of how PhiloDB works.
1: Sure. Let's see. High-level overview. We'll, uh, we'll try to figure out how to do this uh, on audio. <laughs> um, it's, um, we'll it's, it's we'll pretty have videos simple. I mean, in the show notes. Oh, okay, okay. Cool, cool. Uh, that sounds great. So let's see. At a high level. Um, so you have Cassandra and Spark, and you can think of FollowDB as a layer in between um, Spark and Cassandra. Um, that um, Cassandra... Um, by nature, understand has its own table format, uh, but you can think of FiloDB as a translator. It it takes um, the data from um, from Spark and translates it into columnar format and writes into Cassandra. And on the read side, it does the same thing. It has a Spark data source that reads out the data, the raw um, chunks from Cassandra, and translates it into rows that Spark understands and uh, and can do complex analysis on. Um, at a 30,000-foot view, it's, it's, it's sort of like that. And um, the, uh, in the ingestion path, um, ValiDB has a mem table um, like Cassandra, but it's optimized for uh, columnar storage. So ingest a lot of data in memory and uh, chunk it up and then write it to Cassandra.
0: So perhaps this would be easier to explain uh, with... An example. Well, maybe not, but hopefully this will be easy to explain with like an example. Like if we go back to that video analytics example. Um, maybe you could explain how the in how PhiloDB would be an appealing option for you know from ingestion to analytics. Um, kind of what that would look like.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think that's uh, yeah. Uh, I think that's a good idea. So we'll we'll back up to so let's say that your system has let's say your data is coming in through a message queue, right? That, that's these days. It's most likely to be Apache Kafka, um, and then it would go into some processing system. Um, then, it, then you write it to somewhere. Like uh, you might write it to Hadoop, or you might write it to, um, say, raw data in Cassandra. Um, so, where FileDB will fit in is that uh, basically it could sit in as where you ingest your raw data. So you would have. Uh, data from Kafka coming into, say, Spark Streaming. Then Spark Streaming would take the data which is already partitioned and write it uh, into, into FiloDB. And um, the difference... And so you can think of FiloDB as uh, a much more performant substitute for writing into Cassandra. Uh, you could model your data in a similar way. Let's say for real Analytics, um, I might... Uh, gosh, I might divide my data into... Um, say some timestamp and customer ID, you know, kind of thing. Um, or there, there, there's other ways of dividing it. Like, um, but you have, you have some key and you could, I could write the data in, into it. Um, the, the really, the, the, the contrast is, uh, so the way that I would think about it is that it's like writing into um, Cassandra, but it's more performant for writes uh, as well as reads. And, um, it's unlike Hadoop in that I'm writing data using a primary key. So the really nice thing about um, it writing in a database as opposed to a file is that um, your systems are never going to work 100%. At some point, Spark streaming, um, which is, is getting more mature, but you know it still crashes once in a while. So let's say that Spark streaming crashes, right? Uh, so you have to plan for this. Um, now, now, Now you need to figure out, okay, I'm going to restart Spark. And... If you're writing to a file, you're not quite sure you've written data at some point, And then you need to go back and you need to replay this data, right? So what happens when you replay data? Um, so Kafka design is designed, is very good for this because it buffers up data. Then you decide at some point you failed. So you have a checkpoint. You're gonna go back to your checkpoint and replay all the data. Um, with the files-based system, when you replay this data, it's gonna get appended. Or at least um, to HDFS will get appended. Then later on, you're going to need to run jobs to deduplicate the data and make sure. Um, for, for some, some people might not need this, but for a lot of people, you don't really want to count things twice, right? So you need to go back and deduplicate data, which is pretty expensive. With a database-based system, uh, system, when you write into primary key, you know that you're going to overwrite the same data, um, so that you don't, you won't have the problem of deduplication.
0: So there's a lot there, and I want to delve into. Now that we have like a, a, a higher level overview, um, we've we've covered some of what PhiloDB is. I want to drill down into some of the um, some of the closer up features. So PhiloDB has a Parquet style storage layout. Could right. you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, so what, what it means by a Parquet-style layout is that we're following the same principles in terms of uh, that Parquet uses. That is that um, we group data by columns. And so when you have a 1,000 rows, we're going to store all the 1,000 points from one column, like first name, together. Um, and, then we, and then we do that, um, and, and data is grouped into... Um, in, in Parquet, is grouped into uh, pages, and in, in FileDB is grouped into partitions, um, so it, it follows a similar layout that groups data together by column is, is what is meant there
0: Got it so um, and I think we've we've already kind of covered the the advantage of uh, advantages of the columnar format um, so another uh, feature of using this is that Cassandra is a versioned database Why is this a desirable feature uh, given the use cases for PhiloDB
1: Ah, um yeah let me clarify uh, that so um so there's some versioning built into PhiloDB um, Cassandra by itself is not uh, necessarily a version database although you oh, could okay. implement it uh, yourself just by adding a version key um, the, well so versioning well um I guess that depends on who you talk to but I'll describe some use cases that um, uh, that you know inspired the versioning it, and 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 it's that um one is that um, for, for some use cases, uh, you want to be able to control what uh, data that the user sees. Uh, this is especially true in, say, government data or, like, highly sensitive, like, say, public data sets. Um, let's say that you have a data set that it has, um, say, public um, official salaries or something, <laughs> you know, and let's say that this got updated and, 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 and you made a mistake that that would be, like, pretty bad, right, to publish something like that. So um, usually in, in these kind of environments, the versioning is very important in, in the sense that I want to be able to add some changes and I want to be able to preview it. Um, so you can think of that as, like, transactions in some ways, except that for mo- most databases, like, the t- transactions are not designed to h- leave data, like... Um, in different versions, so to speak. They're, they're more designed so that you can roll back your changes. But if I was to write a data to a regular database like MySQL, you would still see the update pretty fast. Um, you could roll it back with the transaction. But um, versioning is more like I can write the data, you know, I could have it for like a week, you know, Absolutely. in a new version and not like merge it. Um, until I'm ready. So it's it's more about user control over what you see
0: so we hear a lot about the lambda architecture these days and I know you've taken some umbrage with this term uh, but you've also said that PhiloDB can simplify a lambda architecture could you explain how you see the lambda architecture today and why PhiloDB offers a simplification
1: um, I would say systems like um, FiloDB uh, can simplify the, uh, uh, the premise of Lambda is that you need uh, separate systems to process the fast data and the big data, and then you need to uh, manage the complexity and, and merge it because the systems are designed for different strengths. And I think f- what FiloDB says is you don't really need fi- separate systems. You need a well-designed system that can handle both well. Um, and then you can eliminate the complexities. For example, let's say that I'm a shop running Cassandra, and there's a lot of those. Um, and I want to add, you know, big data analytics. I don't have to add an entire Hadoop infrastructure. Um, I can, um, and, and the converse could be said about someone who's running only Hadoop, you know, but not needing to add, you know, a um, NoSQL store. Um, Basically, I can stick with uh, one system, um, one set of systems that can do both jobs um, instead of needing to implement both and merging um, data from both systems. So, so that way you have uh, the same system that you use. For example, I could use regular Cassandra for uh, dashboards, and that would work very well. I, and, and this way I can use Cassandra also for um, analyzing a lot of data. Um, and, and so that way, uh, I only need to maintain one set of technologies, and instead of having to maintain several, uh, and, and I think that's you know quite you know appealing from TCO perspective.
0: And at Strata Plus Hadoop World 2016, you're giving a talk called "No Lambda: right. A New Architecture." Combining streaming, ad hoc, machine learning, and batch analytics. So, what are the tenets of this architecture, and what are we moving away from that uh, we're leaving behind from the Lambda architecture? Um,
1: yeah, I, I think I think I think we uh, just uh, mentioned it. But basically, you're talking about um, uh, simplic- simplicity, having um, streaming systems that can flow into data storage systems that can handle it, that can process new data, old data, um, and um, stuff together. Um, and having a much more simplified stack that can do, you can get a lot more out of one stack, um, as opposed to needing several. Um, and uh, I think that's really the, the main word, is, uh, is, is kind of like the simplicity and, and um, using, using the same things for, for both.
0: What kinds of technologies uh, would we want to have in this No Lambda stack?
1: Um, I mean, I I talk about the technology stack that I'm familiar with um, that I, I talk that we'll be talking about uh, consists of um, uh, Apache Kafka, uh, Spark, uh, Cassandra, um, uh, Scala, and Akka, um, and um, you know I think that will fit. Um, all these use cases for streaming as well as for um, batch analytics uh, when you add in something like uh ODB. Mm. Um, that's, that's obviously not the only stack you could have. There are other ones out there, but you know, that, 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 that's the one that I'll be describing.
0: So this is the smack stack. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, the smack, so this, this includes some technologies that we haven't really discussed yet. And I, I'd love to get an overview of this architecture. So, for example, how how does like why why is Scala and Akka uh, so appealing that you would f- fit it into the acronym SMAC? Uh,
1: okay, all right. So so SMAC stands for Scala, Mesos, Akka, Cassandra, and Kafka. Um, actually, it's not the Scala. It's Scala and Spark. That, 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 that's so the S is, is oh okay. It's quite okay. a big letter in that you know, but it's the first one. That's so true. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, so, why are these technologies a good fit? I mean, b- because they en- encompass um, all the different um, needs. Like, if we start uh, with Scala and Spark, um, why is Scala important? Um, one is, I think, for two things. One is because it's uh, uh, it is tied to the um, the JVM, where you have so many um, big data technologies, and as a as a platform, is, is you know, is is pretty crucial. Um, but at the same time, it offers, uh, you know, functional aspects, which has been, I think, a really big key of Spark success is that you, the idea that um, in, in Scala, um, I can have collections, I can have li- a list of items, and I can transform them, sort it, uh, and, and map it into other things to produce new values. So th- this is like a very key part of, uh, of functional transformation and functional programming uh, instead of like thinking about um, procedurally, go, you know, going over, um, you know, one thing at a time, right? Um, I think that's been really crucial for uh, Spark success, uh, because not only because Spark's written in Scala, but uh, conceptually, for me, transforming a collection in, Spark, uh, in Scala is the same as transforming a uh, RDD in Spark. Uh, it's really this, this not only conceptually the same, but many of the transformations are named the same thing, them doing a map and doing a group by, right? And and, and so um, once you get this concept, then um, it, it, it really, um, you know, you can transform any kind of data mm. that way. So it becomes very, very powerful. Um, and just quickly, uh, it, it's really hard to fit the description to the whole stack in like, you know, two minutes, right? But um, I think Scala, Cassandra, we've talked about um, Kafka because you need a way to ingest data um, in a streaming environment. Um, Spark streaming can uh, transform it. And where the mesos and the ACA parts uh, that we haven't talked about come in is is that um, ACA is important uh, because um, it offers a very low latency framework for handling um, data um, in a message driven uh, reactive way. And that sounds really loaded, but for a big data pipeline, um, there there are are times when you need uh, connectors for uh, just to, let's say you need a way to um, ingest data through HTTP, right? So uh, ACA is an HTTP module, right? And Scala has a lot of HTTP frameworks. Uh, and ACA is really good at um, handling failure and at um, getting your data. Like if you need data to flow in milliseconds, um, you're probably going to be doing that in ACA. So so that that becomes, um, that fills out the whole framework. And then Mesos is a way of, um, I think in any framework, you need a way of orchestrating uh, different um, resources, and so Mesos is a is a. I mean, there's obviously a lot of different ones that um, that Spark can work with, but um, Mesos offers a good way for um, to have different uh, resources be mediated and to um, share those resources, and and you can even have. Uh, it's not just for big data, right? Uh, Mesos can be used to run your microservices, and to deploy them, um, to orchestrate them. So it's a pretty powerful uh, tool set. So Mm. in this whole stack, you have a processing framework, which is Spark. You have um, storage system, like Cassandra and FiloDB. Uh, You have uh, the um, pipeline, which is Kafka. Um, um, You have... um, um, concurrency and low latency framework like Akka, and then you have a, a an orchestration and operation framework like Mesa. So it kind of rounds out the whole stack.
0: So within that stack, we've talked about two out of three of the uh, the, the the big Berkeley technologies that I've heard about recently. And the third one is um, Tachyon, which I've also heard uh, yes. you talk some about. Um, we, we have an upcoming show with HY, who's oh, the, nice. the creator of Tachyon. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so why why you know I saw a talk where you mentioned Tachyon and 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 why it's appealing to the Spark and Cassandra um, synergies. So why is Tachyon exciting to you and to PhiloDB?
1: Yeah, I think Tachyon is uh, going to be a uh, very important. Um, as we talked about caching earlier, and um, you know the importance of like in memory caching. So Tachyon is like a um, you can think of it as a high, highly available in-memory cache. Um, so um, we talked about possibly caching uh, data uh, from Cassandra and Spark earlier um, in memory, but there's a couple um, there's a couple weaknesses with that. Um, it's one of them. One of the major ones is that it's not HA because the data is cached in a Spark worker's heap, and so once Spark or any of its workers goes down, then then you uh, you lose that data. Tachyon is different because Tachyon stores the data off heap outside of the Spark processes. Uh, but it has a way to enable you to read the data very quickly still. Um, so, so it works very well as a, as a cache. Um, and I think folks that have found it uh, very compelling are um, folks that are using it to store data that could be local or remote. So for definitely for the remote data, you could get it much fa- much faster um, from Tachyon. So it kind of offers a tiered. You can think of it as a, a caching, offers multiple caching uh, tiers, uh, hmm. and and so that um, could be very important to your architecture.
0: Is that speed of access by Tachyon? Is that in, uh, enabled by lineages?
1: Lineages. Well, is um, that is that
0: to miss totally misunderstanding? Though?
1: Oh yeah, the sort of sort of lineage thing. Uh, you're talking about lineage like in Spark.
0: Well, I, uh, I mean, I've been like reading white paper about Tachyon and like kind of trying to understand, uh, you know. How to approach it and uh, in, in the interview uh, I see. and got it uh, and you know I understand lineages are a big feature uh, that are in both Spark and Tachyon, um, so I guess I was trying to trying to understand um, I guess what to, what to know about lineages.
1: Oh, I see. Well, the way that I understand the term uh, is that is referenced in Spark is that lineage is basically a history. You can think of it as like um, uh, recording the how you get to a certain state, right? So instead of uh, store copying storing say, three copies of my data, uh, I'm going to remember how I uh, got that data and assume that the origin of that data is stored in some, you know, fail-save or replicated store, right? And, and so um, if there's a failure, I can then go back and recompute the data that I need. So th- that's the concept of lineage. And I think when you apply to um, Spark and and what well, in Spark it kind of looks like, basically, RDDs are lazy, right? So if I get a result, that's good. Um, if the result is lost, then I'm going to try to recompute um, that result based on the previous steps. Um, yeah, that's, and I think you can apply that to caching as well. You know, if I'm missing some data, I can um, uh, know I, I can know where that comes from, you know, mm. the lower layers, and, and so I can recover it. Um, so it's a slightly different. I, I think it's different and complementary to the HJ concepts. You know, the HJ concept right, right, is more right. like I'm going to have data that's available right away. But you know, I, I think I think you can have both. You know, and and maybe in certain cases you know, that trade-off is, yeah, you can make some interesting trade-offs.
0: Interesting. Um, do you, do you know what the hurdles are to Tachyon starting to gain adoption or, or integration? Is it just the writing of, um, of plugins or what exactly does, do we need to take Tachyon to the next level?
1: Um, that's probably a better question for Hy. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you would say that it's already, you know, gaining traction. Um, you know, um, I think, um, and I know that they're working on like having more systems be able to plug into it. So, uh, yeah, it's probably, you know, just a matter of time, like other things.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. So you're working on PhiloDB at Tuple Jump. Right. What is Tuple Jump? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so TupuJump, uh, we
1: are a big data a technology and um, uh, services co- uh, development partner. So you can think of it as um, we are here to help uh, help you, um, you meaning, um, say you are an you know, enterprise or um, some other company, uh, that wants to develop certain uh, big data uh, platforms to support. Um, we're basically there to help you, um, you know, every step of the way to to get there. And especially in the early phases and you know, our architecture design, uh, we're you know, pretty strong at. But we we also um, um, will we'll do uh, all sorts of projects, and especially if the area involves um, you know, Spark or Cassandra, um, you know, streaming uh, Kafka, this this kind of thing. I think we can we can definitely help other folks along.
0: What kinds of products do you want to build in the future at Tuple Jump?
1: What kind of products? I mean,
0: I, I would say are you be- are you mo- are you mostly focused on on just delivering uh, existing products and and kind of uh, the the. Model of, of consulting and 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 helping out enterprises, or do you want to continue to build out more products?
1: It's a hybrid of uh, consulting and also uh, building out our open source projects. You know, which which complements uh, a lot of these um, um, big data uh, development projects. So yeah, I, I think it's a hybrid model.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So speaking more broadly where do you see this space going? Like, what is at the frontier of this problem of big data meets fast data?
1: Um, I think, yeah, that's a great question. What is at uh, the frontier? Um, I think a lot of it uh, will be uh, probably... this um, Well, th- there's different uh, aspects to think about. I mean, uh, I think that there is, uh, from a technology point of view, there's always... Um, performance envelopes and other things like that uh, to push, you know, to make things, you know, faster, better. Uh, although I, I think that a big part of it is, is that um, we're just getting started. You know, um, I, I think this is a relatively new uh, concept. Uh, folks are very much, um, there are a lot of folks that are still on say data warehouses. They're kind of moving um, into this world and trying to figure it out. So I think that actually the frontier is more like uh, education and, you um, um, applying it to specific verticals and, and use cases, um, so I, I sort of see it as, um, it, yeah, it, it is, it is a frontier. And, and so what 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 that means is that we need to bring it uh, to folks and help educate and and get the concepts uh, rolling more.
0: Sounds like there's plenty of low hanging fruit. Um, well, Evan, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you about. About PhiloDB and the smack stack and everything else that we discussed.
1: Yeah, Jeff, thanks very much for having me on the show. It was a pleasure.
0: Absolutely.